Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. Oh, went for a bit more of a trill this time, huh? Uh. Uh. <laughs> and our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumlips Tesuetmuk territory within the unceded traditional lands of Suetmukulu. As settlers, we take seriously our responsibility to center and uplift Indigenous creatives and to work to build a more inclusive YA environment for all marginalized folks. Mm hmm. Like and this the week we're talking about of white Genovia. girls. <laughs> I feel like we we have such hope in our territorial acknowledgement show, and then every week we're like, but this book's about white people. Let's face it, we have peaked with Trickster, and we will probably never again approach something like it. Wasn't Trickster good? Oh, I haven't been keeping track, but I think we're now almost up to the point, as of the recording date that we're doing this, I think we're almost up to the point where our screeners ran out, so we have a couple of episodes that we've not seen that we can look forward to. Literally so excited. (laughs) Mm. Oh, I did mean to tell you that Alex Heaney of 7th Row did tell me when I was recording that Indigenous YA podcast with her Mm -hmm. that the show has 100% been greenlit for a second season. (gasps) Yes, that's exciting. That is so exciting. And I'm keeping a really close eye on when and how Monkey Beach goes into wide release because it premiered at VIF and been seeing it doing some festival circuits. So I'm Mm -hmm. hoping we get a video on demand release soon and then we could do more Eden Robinson. Ah! There we go. Yeah. Ah! So exciting. (laughs) Because apparently we're only hedging our bets on one indigenous (laughs) author whose works keep getting converted or adapted, which is like great for her. And like, where is the rest? Well, it's also like, it's great for Eden Robinson, but also like the woman has been publishing for a long time. And finally, people have realized how cinematic her books are. I'm just, I'm hoping that Trickster is the success we all hope it will be. And that that spurs some more production companies to take on indigenous creatives and indigenous texts and mm-hmm. do them justice because yeah. oh anyway yeah absolutely. all this to say today we're talking about the princess diaries by meg cabot <laughs> which is very much a white girl text and oh, i very yeah. much enjoyed it as is typical of when we read white girl texts <laughs> <laughs> well you are the target audience so that does make sense it me I also, I know that we like went through a period where Anne Hathaway bothered people for some reason. I find her perfect in every way. And between her and Julie Andrews, I'm just like, this film is a joy to watch. (laughs) It's just joy. I have never understood the haterade and having just covered the witches from my other podcast, I did realize like, oh yeah, we could have tried to coincide that, but they made the announcement that it was coming out in the U.S. very abruptly. So rest assured, folks, we can cover The Witches another day. But just seeing her performance in that movie, she is unhinged. She's camping it up. And then watching this back to back. And mm-hmm. this is like, she's so calm. She's serene. She's sweet. You know, the Falls are there. Like, she's a really good actress. And I don't think that people give her any credit for that. She's got range. And she's yeah. just, I don't know. She's very charming. Yes. This was a good pandemic pick, Joe. Yes, indeed. And we should give credit to Tea, Books, and Chocolate for basically spurring this discussion. So they had inquired back in July whether this and 
some other text, which has now completely slipped my mind, but they had inquired whether this would qualify. And you responded by yelling at me in all caps, <laughs> Joe, I want to do Princess Diaries. <laughs> so here we are. Hey, yay. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you had mentioned at the end of last week's mini-sode that you were surprised that we hadn't covered Meg Cabot on the show before. Yeah. And I didn't really respond because I didn't know who she was. She's kind of a big deal. Okay. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I will. So she has written over 50 books for young adults. Excuse me? What? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I won't lie. I was very surprised to learn that there are, what, 11 entries in this series alone? Yeah, yeah. She has written a lot. And she writes primarily romances. She's very big in the world of YA romance. And then also she writes a, a fair number of new adult romances as well. Okay. But she has won, like, every award for young people, like the New York Public Library Award, the American Library Association Award, like everything that there is to win. Really? She's a frequent number one bestseller on the New York Times list, and she has over 25 million copies of her books in print worldwide. So she's barely well known. You know, a couple of people have heard of her. Right, okay. okay. <laughs> she's known for romances, and then also, Joe, you might be interested, she's known for sort of like paranormal mysteries as well. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so she's, uh, her big series are obviously The Princess Diaries, which is, I think, her biggest by far. Right. And certainly, I think the only one that's been adapted to film, although I would stand to be corrected on that. Hmm. She also has two other big series, The Mediator and 1-800-WHERE-ARE-YOU, which sounds like something Teen Joe would have read. <laughs> um, I'm paging Richie Tangerly Kusick, is that you writing under a pseudonym? <laughs> Um, and then uh, she's had some shorter series, uh, including An All-American Girl, Avalon High. So she's she's quite a big deal. And in addition to that, she's written a fair number of standalone novels for both young adults and uh, new adults. So yeah, I mean, The Princess Diaries is what she's most known for. But this is a person who has a lot of YA Cred, credibility i guess yeah. yeah oh i'm looking at the adaptation section of her wikipedia and i just found out that 1-800 where are you was adapted into a canadian television series that broadcast <sighs> on the w network from 2003 to 2006 which sounds so much like something we should watch <laughs> rena we are always on the hunt for cancon we are <laughs> oh dear okay i'll add it to the list cool <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so The Princess Diaries, published in 2000, the film comes out the following year, which I was surprised. So this must have been one of those properties where it gets released and people immediately take note of it, snatch it up. Because like that production turnaround is super quick. It actually makes me think that people were optioning this before it was even published. Yeah, which is interesting to me because it came out in 2000 and I think think that's pretty early in Cabot's writing career, so I'm not sure why there was so much buzz around this particular book. Except that, you know, if you think all the way back to 2000, this is pre-Hunger Games, pre-girl mm -hmm. you know, pre protagonist texts, and, and maybe that was the attraction. We've got a, a really sort of dynamic girl protagonist here who gets into ridiculous scrapes. Like, mm -hmm. it's clearly going to be a funny movie if you can realize the awkwardness and the foolishness of Mia onto the screen. But yeah, yeah. I, I too was surprised by how quickly it was picked up. 
Yeah, it is important to note that this time period, it wasn't big for adaptations per se, but this would have been in the middle of the height of a kind of teen movie renaissance. So when we talked about Kevin Williamson on our YA in Focus, remember I talked about the trajectory that he had from Scream to like 99 and how those were like his really, really big years. That ended up spurring basically just a lot of YA Not necessarily adaptations, but YA films. Makes sense. Like, I'm not suggesting that this is an offshoot of that, but I think this was a time period when people realized, right, teenagers have disposable income. (laughs) They are great for movies. Yes. And I do feel like this is also a moment where I think YA publishing was starting to become big again, right? Like, people were realizing, oh, the YA market is not just young adults. We can make a lot of money off of this. Yes, I think so. And I'm just looking in the first book spent 38 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and sold almost immediately to 37 foreign publishers. So <laughs> yeah, okay. So maybe we just answered our own question. Yeah. <laughs> it is surprising, though, because that's basically a one year turnaround, right from publication to yeah. film. I don't know if we have any other examples that have happened that quickly. Uh, we have, but yeah, they're very much like, I've seen the book before it got published, and I grabbed it right away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what is The Princess Diaries about? Good question. Um, Princess Diaries is, of course, the first novel in the series, and it tells us the story of Mia Thermopolis. She's a ninth grader living in New York in Greenwich Village with her single mom who's an artist and her mom is really flighty and flaky and Mia kind of Mia's the one responsible for like making sure the ingredients for dinner are thawed and that they have toilet paper in the house because her mom is just not the kind of person who does things like that I did enjoy all of the references to her mother as, like, she's obviously a very well-respected artist. There's one point where Mia casually drops that she got a $140,000 grant for one of her paintings. Yes. I was like, okay, this woman is not small change, people. No, no. (laughs) But yeah, she goes into the studio and just loses sense of time, which is very much an artist-y thing to do. Yeah, and and she's a loving mom and they have a close relationship, so there's not any animosity there. It's just, yeah, Mm -hmm. she's a bit of a flake about things that aren't her art. Yeah, I liked it. I liked their relationship a lot. I did too, and I I really liked the way the living space comes to life in the film. Mm. Although the film moves to San Francisco, which I thought was kind of an interesting choice. I spent the entire first half being like, okay, this New York looks funny. And then Brian (laughs) said, like, look at the hills. This is obviously San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, and very explicitly, like, not a San Francisco they're trying to hide. Mm -mm. And, of course, the mayor of San Francisco has a cameo in the movie. Of course. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we talk about the adaptation, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Mia is awkward, and she's basically got, you know, a few focuses in life. She's trying desperately to pass algebra, which she hates. Mm -hmm. She really wants to kiss Josh Richter, even though he's awful. Boo, Josh Richter. (laughs) Josh Richter, you suck. And she has a best friend, her best friend, Lily Moskovitz, who hosts a local cable access show and Mm -hmm. is sort of a burgeoning activist who doesn't always think through her activism before she barrels in. 
Oh boy, there's a couple of very, very 2000s-y stuff going on yes. in this. You cued me in advance. You were like, oh yeah, they're taking a page from Clueless with the Barney and Betty references. But most specifically, Lily's campaign against the hoes yes, for doesn't reverse read well racism. Now. I was like, oh God, book. No, 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 no. Yes. Yeah, Lily goes on a campaign because the restaurant or I guess it's a grocery store near I the so. yeah. school gives the Asian students a five cent discount on their lunches. And mm-hmm. Lily thinks that that's wrong. And it's a whole yeah. thing. And it's uncomfortable. It's and I'm glad they left it out of the movie. Thank goodness. Yes. <laughs> So this is Mia's life until her father comes to town with some important news for her. Mm-hmm. He has lost a testicle. He has lost a testicle. <laughs> He's no longer fertile. And as a result, he has to tell her something that he and Mia's mother had planned to keep a secret, which is that he is a prince, the mm-hmm. prince of a principality called Genovia, and she is his only heir. and. Yep. She's going to have to be the crown princess of Genovia. And then we get about 200 pages of her being, no, I don't want to be a princess. (laughs) To which I said, well, this is the hardest suspension of disbelief I have in the entire book. Is that a teen girl discovers she's a princess and then doesn't want to be a princess. Like, come on. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's a lot. Although I did like the way it's positioned primarily as attention between Lily and Mia because because Lily is very politically opposed to the idea of a monarchy. And sure. so and so Mia feels like sure she's never gonna be able to keep her best friend and be the princess of Genovia. Yeah. How I do I hide that. my expensive makeover from my friend so that she doesn't find out I'm a princess? Conflict. So good. So <laughs> this is where Mia's troubles really start. Not only does her mother begin dating the aforementioned algebra teacher but the paparazzi are showing up at school and she ends up in a fight with lily for keeping the princessing a secret from her mm-hmm. and uh, yeah she gets trained to be a princess and I mean, we haven't mentioned the grandmother character oh yeah who is great in the book actually i love julie andrews and i understand why they softened her so much for the film yes. because it's julie andrews and it's julie freaking andrews you don't want to hate watch julie andrews but no. i loved mean grandma a lot She's a bit of an old biddy, isn't yeah, she? She's terrible. Her full name is the Dowager Princess Clarice Ronaldo. And she's awful. She doesn't like Mia. No. She doesn't really think Mia's princess material, but she's going to have to whip her into shape because she doesn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And she's fine with Mia being unhappy. Like, she's the one in the book version, she leaks the story of Mia being the princess to the media to get basically to be like, well, deal with it, Mia. Now it's out. You have to, <laughs> your princess, just cope. And uh, yeah, I kind of love her. She's snarky and sarcastic and kind of mean. And I mm-hmm. enjoyed her very much. I will say that I appreciated in the book that the central conflict doesn't hinge on whether or not Mia will or will not rescind yes. her princessery. Yeah. Because I found that 
very uninteresting to watch in the film, particularly yes. where it's like, I've watched a film before. I'm pretty sure she's going to say yes at the end of the day. Like, no surprises. And also in the film, they add that plot line of there's like a really gross dude and his wife who will for some reason take over Genovia if she doesn't become the princess, which mm-hmm. didn't make mm-hmm. any sense to me and also was boring. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to introduce people who act as foils or antagonists, you actually need to make them characters. You can't yeah. just make them fat mustache twirling people yeah yeah exactly it's very much those two characters in the film and we're talking about the film we shouldn't be but those two characters in the film are very much coded as ugly people are evil oh yeah 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 Yeah. it's like uh, hi we learned from harry potter here we are yeah exactly so yeah and joe i'm talking about this and i'm realizing like i don't actually remember how the book ends she goes to genovia to no that's the movie (laughs) is that the movie yeah so the the book culminates in the big cultural diversity dance. Yes, that's right. Where Mia is embarrassed because Bad 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 Boy ends up making a mockery of her in front of the press so that he can get a kiss. Yes, leaked. yes. And Mia ends up getting rescued by a character who is not in the film, Tina, who is mm-hmm. another rich girl who has similar bodyguard problems. I liked her, actually. I liked her a lot. I do too. I can definitely understand why the character was cut out of the film because it's kind of like one too many. Yeah. But the book benefits from having a character who's similar to Mia because it allows us to see some of that character growth. Like, I do Mm -hmm. think one of my frustrations with the book was that it takes Mia a very, very long time to begin exhibiting any kind of growth or maturity. Like, Mm -hmm. she's a bit of a brat for most of the book. Yes. And it's really not until her friendship with Tina develops in probably the last quarter that I kind of thought, okay, you know what? This character isn't as bad (laughs) anymore. Yeah. Well, and I think Tina really, what she learns from befriending Tina, so basically Lily won't speak to her anymore and and she doesn't trust the popular girls who are suddenly interested in her because she's a princess. And so she has Mm -hmm. Tina to befriend. And what Mia learns about herself is that she was Tina because everybody else in the school was too and that's yeah. not a good reason to be yeah. unkind to people <laughs> and so she <laughs> she learns something about herself there and that is really where we see you know in the film the big thing is like learning to be of service to others that's yes. not really an aspect of the book but nope. the beginning of thinking about someone other than yourself is her friendship with Tina yeah yeah it's interesting because I definitely had an idea in my mind and I think I was conflating both the book and the film with a kind of Hallmark movie, Mm -hmm. like The Christmas Prince or some garbage like that, where Mm -hmm. you realize, oh, I'm secretly going to fictional country Genovia between France and Italy, Mm -hmm. and that is where the story will take place, and it will be entirely consumed about the process of becoming a princess. And really, this book is small. It's It's about Mia being a grade nine student who discovers something very large about herself. But it's mostly about her trying not to fail algebra and wanting to kiss the wrong boy. Yes. Yes. And that, that surprised me. Yeah, I, I think, yes. I think <laughs> yes, that is all. That is all. Yeah, I thought I had something smart to say, but I don't. What I wanted to talk about a little bit is the family structure in the book, because they change okay. it yeah, very yeah. much for the film. It's a huge departure. Well, it's interesting because the film is just so very 2000s in its conventional sort of structure of the family and what it's willing to do on the screen. Mm -hmm. So the whole deal with Mia is that she was born out of wedlock. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, Philippe, her father, was supposed to, like, get married, quote-unquote, properly and have a, quote-unquote, proper heir. And then he just yeah. never did. He was, like, a giant playboy for his whole life. And this I is, do like that. <laughs> this is the only daughter he had, and he had her out of wedlock. And he's got a domineering mother who he doesn't know how to say no to. Mm-hmm. And the mother of his child is treated really badly by... Yeah. <laughs> by his mother and by him and uh he's been a pretty he's a lousy dad he's a lousy dad he's a lousy dad in the film they kill him off because then they can sanctify him and they were married but had like a secret divorce because her father knew that being a prince in genovia was like more more important important than parenting his child which is an interesting message i agree (laughs) i missed the reference that they were married i thought that they just broke up no, she has this, she talks about their secret divorce. And also her name very is very specifically, like, they all have the same last name in the, right. in the film version. Right, yeah. right, right. Okay. Yeah. I did think that that was a very interesting choice for the film to make. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the film. In the book, I liked it because it felt like a consideration of a family structure that we don't often see because yeah. usually we just talk about divorce and mm-hmm. how it's really hard on the child because you're toggling back and forth between two different parents. And here there was the conflict, but it wasn't about, ooh, how do I get back at mom and side with dad? Mm-hmm. Like there's only that one instance where she says, no, I'm actively going to go to this dance with Josh. You can't stop me. But even that is actually her siding with grand-mère as yes. opposed to mom and dad. Like the mom and dad are kind of a unified front, even though they don't agree on their parenting style. Well, it's interesting because there's this whole conflict that brews around the fact that in the book, Philippe is, I mean, he's kind of garbage in a lot of ways. Like he doesn't like that Helen has this new boyfriend, even though- like, Oh yeah, he's super jealous. <laughs> he's super jealous of the algebra teacher, but because of the algebra teacher, they get the inside scoop that Josh Richter is a bad dude. Mm-hmm. And so they do, they have this unified parental front where they're like, we hear this guy is garbage. We don't want you going to this dance with him. The 2000s terminology is that he's fast. Brenna. He's fast. He's fast. I loved that. <laughs> In general, can I just say, a cultural diversity dance is just about the most 2000s Ooh. thing I oh can imagine. My. We're being inclusive and we're being super problematic about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have questions about the makeup of the school. There's very uh, deliberate effort by Cabot to say that Mia has culturally diverse friendships so mm-hmm. obviously lily is jewish and then there's a reference to a friend who has a kind of like east indian name mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and tina is saudi arabian right yes mm-hmm. although i think her dad is saudi arabian her dad is saudi arabian yeah, yeah because they keep talking about her white former model mother yes yeah uh it's interesting I like some of these early 2000s efforts. Like you can see the attempts to be a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more diverse, a little less conventional. And Mm -hmm. it's not there, but I'm thinking of films and movies that we watch from the 10s and on. And they've been way more problematic than this book was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Should we transition over? Yeah, I think we should. Okay. There she is right there. That's me at Thermopolis. Glamour, romance, fame. Mia Thermopolis had it all, but only in her dreams. As always, this is as good as it's gonna get. 
Her real life was completely ordinary. You're way tense. But now, something's about to happen. Your grandmother called. This is the first time she's ever contacted us. What you want? That will change everything. I am queen of Genovia. Whoa, whoa. And you are princess. Shut up. Just in case, I'm not enough of a freak already. <laughs> What's that, a tiara? I can teach you to walk, talk, sit, stand like a princess. <laughs> Let the work begin. We don't schlump like this. It's a question of taste. Princesses never cross their legs in public. Tuck one ankle behind the other. A matter of grace. Oh, oh. What kind of dancing do you do? Where is the beautiful girl? My granddaughter, Amelia. And a chance Attack. to make all her dreams come true. Only Paolo. Gonna take this and give you much better. So, as we mentioned, less than a year later, film comes out in 2001. The film is quite a bit more conventional in just about everything. Like, whatever mm. you think a film for young girls about a fantasy makeover is going to be, this is what The Princess Diaries is giving you. Correct. So the, the screenplay is by Gina Wencos, and she had previously done Coyote Ugly. She did this. She did the sequel. She would go on to do The Perfect Man, which is a Heather Locklear, Hilary Duff movie. So, like, she knows her strengths. Mm -hmm. And then it was directed by Gary Marshall. And, of course, he has done just a bevy of films like Overboard, Beaches, Pretty Woman, Runaway Bride, all of those terrible Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve. Oh. So, like, Gary Marshall is a staple of romantic comedies. And he doesn't do a ton of YA, but he has almost always done female-focused films. So he is mm -hmm. a really good fit for this. But it also very much means you're going to get a Gary Marshall movie. Yeah, the romance gets ramped way, 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 way up. Like the of course. the book is very much like, I want to kiss that boy, but he's bad. But oh, secretly, the nice boy is the boy I should have been with all along. Right. Yeah. And this is very much that let's on steroids. have a romantic triangle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the book, it's very much like it's an undercurrent to everything. It's just this idea that like. Lily's brother is sort of secretly in love with her and she's mm -hmm. realizing that she feels something for him. But when through her newfound popularity comes the opportunity to also kiss a popular boy, which sure. she's 15. Yeah. Fair. Yeah, there's a lot of passages in that book where she's basically, <laughs> oh, is he wanting to do this because I'm famous and rich now and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't care. I should yeah, just take advantage of this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's relatable. But the in the film version, it's like literally every time she sees Josh, she imagines making out with him. Mm -hmm. And we don't even realize, like, I think that the potential relationship with Lily's brother gets way underplayed in the film. Yeah, he's not as present, so no. it almost becomes harder to see him as yeah. a romantic option. But then by the time you get to the end of the film, you're like, oh, right, yeah, okay, they have been doing all of these little cutaways. I think part of it is that in the book, there's all these scenes where he's tutoring her in yeah. algebra, whereas, of course, that gets cut from the film. So Understandably. there's no opportunity to have them regularly interact like that. In the film, he's just this guy who sits on half walls and plays the harmonica. And then she's like, oh, I am in love with you. Oh, mm -hmm. you've been there all <laughs> along. How could I forget? I'm in love with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so 
rounding out this cast, we've got Hector Elizondo as Joe, and this is the Lars bodyguard character from the book only because he's played by Hector Elizondo. He is basically a guardian angel. (laughs) Well, and because there's no dad character, right? He stands in as sort of the person who Julie Andrews' character, Grelmere, can bounce her Mm -hmm. choices for Mia off of. And he he ends up being like a stand-in father figure. Yeah. Which really kind of takes the role of the math teacher also in a lot of ways. Like the math teacher is technically there in the film, but not really a character. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, because by not having a father figure and also ramping up the Genovia stuff, because as you mentioned, this film is all about accepting responsibility for others as Mm -hmm. opposed to just trying to survive the academic year, (laughs) like in the book. It's really pro-public service for a pre-9-11 film, actually, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... As a result, it makes everything bigger. So the culmination of the film is not the cultural diversity dance, which doesn't exist. It's about her stepping into the limelight and taking responsibility at a major political function. Yes. Because <laughs> that is kind of one of the other fun things is that in the film, Grammaire isn't just staying at the Plaza Hotel, and that's where all these princess lessons are happening. Genovia actually has their own... <laughs> Embassy. In San Francisco for reasons? Mm-hmm. For a country with 50,000 people, Genovia, <laughs> super popular, and she's going to be on the cover of Teen Vogue. It doesn't make any sense, and I love no, it. No, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so others rounding out this cast, we have Heather Matarazzo as Lily, Robert Schwartzman as Michael Moskowitz, and I like the fact This is just a bit of a sidebar because I have quite a few Jewish friends who get really annoyed that Jewish characters in films are routinely not played by Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So I did like the fact that we've got two Jewish, like real life Jewish actors playing Mm -hmm. real, not real, fictional (laughs) Jewish characters. There we go. I can speak. A fun fact for you, Brenna, do you know who Robert Schwartzman is? No. So you may recognize the last name. Mm Mm-hmm. No, you don't. (laughs) Do you know who Jason Schwartzman is? He's from like Rushmore and some of the... Okay, let's put it this way. Robert Schwartzman... (laughs) I forget who I'm talking to sometimes. Do you ever do this to Trace? Are you ever like, Trace, let me explain some basic concepts about actors in cinema for you? Because do you ever think that when you're talking to Trace, you're talking to me? Like, does this happen in the reverse is what I'm wondering. It does happen in the reverse. I'm usually the person who's like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> All this to say, Robert Schwartzman is the grandson of Francis Ford Coppola. He oh. is cousin to Nicolas Cage. Like oh. He's Sophia Coppola, the director, is his other cousin. Oh. Mm. Okay, so he's a person, you're saying. But ironically enough, not an actor. He's only in a couple of movie roles, and then he is a composer. So he's done a ton of composing work for very, very well-known films, which I did not list because, you know, that's not what we're talking about. But it was interesting because I was like, he looks familiar. The features look like his relations. But then when I looked him up, I was like, oh, this is a weird movie role for him when normally Hmm. he doesn't act. Interesting. That yeah. was interesting. I liked him in the role. Yeah, he's fun. He's he had cute. very 2000 hair. Oh, the hair is bad, bad, bad. Across the board almost, actually. Like uh, on the boys, on the boys. Oh, gosh, yeah. Oh, well. 
it was a rough time for boys' haircuts. <laughs> it was. We also have Mandy Moore as Lana. She is Mia's nemesis. Pretty similar character in both texts. And then we have Eric Von Ditten as Josh. Ugh. He was a soap star. So that tells you what you need to know about mm. his acting. Mm-hmm. And uh, Carolyn Goodall as Helen, Mia's mom, and Sandra O, oh, who I'm giving a shout out, even though if you watched this and didn't know who Sandra O oh was, you'd be like, who? Vice Principal Gupta? That character's not a big deal. But I was like, oh, it's Sandra O." Oh. so. I loved her in it, actually. I was going to say my two favorite cameos in this film are Sandra O oh as the principal, because there's just these moments, the way she treats Clarice, mm-hmm. Grandmere. It makes me laugh every time. Yeah, and just the way she treats the popular girls too. Like when mm-hmm. she doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. When Mia like smashes the ice cream cone into Lana. Yeah. And she's like, Did you see that, Principal Gupta? <laughs> Principal Gupta's like, nope, was in a really important meeting. <laughs> like you're the best. <laughs> Which is what you want to do to bratty yes! popular kids, right? I always, you know, it's we've talked about that dynamic before where the teachers seem to side with the popular kids. I love mm-hmm. a movie that subverts or, or doesn't do that. And then yeah. my other favorite cameo in this is Larry Miller, who plays the very problematic Paolo Putinesca. And <laughs> there's yeah. just something extremely, like Larry Miller always plays that role, right? Like he's Truly. done that bit. Yeah. 10,000 times and it's not even good but it's very nostalgic mm-hmm. <laughs> you it's know one of those things where you show up and you know exactly what you're going to get from yes, him exactly exactly yeah. so yeah yeah so as as we mentioned this film is quite i don't want to say formulaic because the connotation makes it seem like it's dismissive and i didn't enjoy it i actually find this film very enjoyable I think a large part of it is that it does feel so conventional and there's something very satisfying and comfort food about that. Yes, that's exactly how I feel about it. It was really pleasurable to watch right now. I fell asleep watching it twice and I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean, like (laughs) I got really cozy and I started to watch it and I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to go to sleep instead. But it's just, it is cozy. It's a very cozy movie. Absolutely. This isn't a movie that's going to surprise you with some subversive twist. It's going to give you what you want and probably what you need. Mm -hmm. I did feel like the film is actually better at kind of building to a natural climax. Like I like that the stuff with Josh is actually in the middle of the film so that we don't have to wait until the end to find out that he's kind of a terrible guy. We can just get it out of the way. Yes, I agree. So they move that whole dance thing to like a school beach party at the end of term kind of thing, which makes a lot more sense for what happens, which is a much more sort of revealing. Basically, she gets shot like not nude, but just covered up Mm -hmm. by a paparazzi. And like the stakes are a little bit higher in a way that is much more amusing to watch, I think. Yeah. What did you think of this increased role for Genovia? I know you mentioned that it was coming basically the same year as 9-11. Yeah. I was perplexed by it, having just finished the book and then watching the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of it was that I didn't buy that they would actually thrust Mia into these situations because she's so green. Like the idea that she would sit at a fancy dinner and not have someone by her side to help guide her. Like, no, she's just sandwiched between the prime minister and somebody else. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Well, and some of the sets don't even make sense, right? Like that's supposed to be in a banquet hall and it's like so wildly cramped. It's really funny. It's like they put too big a table into that room for that scene in a really strange way. Like, Oh, I thought that was just at the at the embassy. Well, it is at the embassy, but like an embassy would have a proper room for that oh, table. I see. Okay, okay. Have, especially like the size of that embassy, right? Like that right. embassy is like massive. 
which is funny because if you've ever been in a nation's capital where there are a lot of embassies, like Joe and I both mm-hmm. went to university in Ottawa, and it's like you walk around Ottawa and you're like, oh, that townhouse in the middle of that row of Victorian mm-hmm. townhouses, that one's an embassy. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely don't have a gated no. community with like grass and automated languages that yell at you to get off of it. No, <laughs> especially for a principality. <laughs> like, no, mm-hmm. but it is, you know, part of what's so lovely about all of that, though, is that the central thrust of the film is this idea of giving yourself over to service. And the reason why I brought up 9-11 is because I think we see that a lot in post 9-11 media i was surprised to see it in a film that came out before 9-11 and i guess i mean national service is framed in a very particular way post 9-11 so maybe it's not strange but i was struck by it because you expect the central argument to be like do i want this for my life and instead it's do i want to give myself over to this country the way my father did and like the undercurrent to me is yes he abandoned you to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, like doing this will require a sacrifice of intimate family elements, right? Like, mm-hmm. to me, it was very much, but what is being asked of you means that you will leave your mother behind now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that doesn't get reconciled. Like, I'm almost legitimately interested to do a follow-up to this at some point so that we can see how that movie plays out. Because, of course, the implication at the end of the film is we're literally flying to Genovia. Movie 2 will be set in Genovia. Yeah, I never watched the sequel. I have a feeling that it's a case of depreciating returns. Like, I don't think that people like the second one quite as much. Well, and uh, I, I, all I did was read the Wikipedia about it. But according to the Wikipedia, even though there's 11 books to choose from, they chose to not use any of them for the treatment for Princess Diaries right. 2, which is an interesting choice. <laughs> and apparently... I feel the tone. I feel that tone. <laughs> <laughs> I just read this morning that there is a third film in development and yeah um, is it not really happening it's one of those i feel like i've heard that for years julie andrews and anne hathaway both confirmed it in 2019 though that they were still interested in doing it okay i could see it coming now like i could see it as a bit of post-covid comfort food kind of film right well there's certain properties like i just covered hocus pocus for Mm -hmm. the other podcast and that film has had a long rumored sequel in the works and it's just never come off the ground. I'm thinking of Legally Blonde where Reese Witherspoon just got the gang back together for a kind of COVID Zoom thing. And she's suggesting that the third film, which would have come out this year, will come out, I think, in 2022. So like there's a bunch of these properties where they got to two and you could see that they had maybe planned to do it as a trilogy, but it just never came to pass. Mm -hmm. I'm like... I can 100% see, you know, if they can keep those budgets low, I'm willing to bet that they could come back and make a splash. Apparently, Chris Pine is in Princess Diaries 2 Royal Engagement. Oh, I bet you he's the love interest from some random neighboring country who's also got a fictitious name. Yes, it looks that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Prince something of Lumacria. Lord Nicholas Devereux. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and John Reese davies is in it, too. It's a decent cast, but I... um. I don't know. It did not do well. Right. And it has a 26% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So maybe right. we just skip that one. Yeah. 
I mean, what's interesting about this film is just how well it actually did do. So $26 million budget, which is about on par with what I would expect a film of this size and scope to be. It's like, yeah. okay, we give <laughs> we give Julie Andrews some sweet, sweet Julie Andrews money. And then the rest of it is like, who are these people? <laughs> but I mean, I think Anne Hathaway is legitimately good. Some of the beauty stuff makes me uncomfortable like when she gets the makeover and i think i texted you she kind of looks a bit like a whore like i was really (laughs) uncomfortable with the makeup job that they did on her i say that because she's meant to be 15 Anne hathaway was 19 when she filmed it but it was very like oh we're sexualizing children okay no this makes me uncomfortable and she actually wears it out much better yeah i think it would have been more ambitious to have given her the mia farrow haircut that they gave her in the book because what Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> I mean, no, but it would have been funny to have it seen on the funny. screen. But really, for me, this movie is all about Julie Andrews. Yeah. Claude Mare has such a significantly increased role in this film because they're like, oh my God, we've got Julie Andrews. Yes. He's still there. Yeah. I okay. thought you were making a point and I said yes. No. <laughs> I just like Julie Andrews a lot and I want her to be my grandma. I do too. And I love her in this. And I love that they softened Grandmere so that she could be this. Like, normally I'm like, they took away the complexity and the interest, and I'm mm-hmm. really grumpy about it. But when it's Julie Andrews, I'm not grumpy about it. I don't need my Julie Andrews to be complex. I'm happy for her to be soft and cuddly. <laughs> You've changed, Brenna. Just for Julie Andrews. I will <laughs> Just say, for Julie Andrews. she makes a preschool TV show with the Jim Henson company called Julie's Green Room. Okay. And it's all about basically puppets who want to be in musical theater, and she runs a musical theater camp for puppets. It's quite lovely for if any of our listeners have preschoolers in the house. It's on Netflix, and it's quite charming. That sounds adorable. Mm -hmm. I think I'll stick to my Isabella Rossellini talks about the sex lives of animals video (laughs) series, but you know, you do you, Julie Andrews. I'm obsessed with Isabella Rossellini's Instagram account right now. I mean, she's a treasure as well. She is. And you know what I want to do? I want to be like the hottest woman in the world and then retire to a farm to raise sheep and put them in the back of my Fiat. Like, what a life. What a life. She and Samuel, really, they figured it all out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Okay. Do you want to play some YA bingo? I do. The Princess Diaries. I do. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so I want to add two squares to the card. Okay, what have you got? Uh, montage. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I want to add rags to riches story. Mm-hmm. The book. She's right. not really rags to riches in the film. She's like upper middle class to riches. Actually, that's one interesting thing that the film never explains is the private school that she goes to. Yeah, I think the impression is meant to be that Oh, no. Okay, I'm confusing it with the book. Yeah, in the book, the father pays for it, and that's really explicit. Yeah. But in the film, it's just like, no, you just go to this very fancy private school. Maybe she's the scholarship student at the fancy school. See, I love that storyline. Tell me about it, man. (laughs) Like, it's not in there, but sure, I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the film has a very confusing depiction of class. Oh, yeah. They live in a converted firehouse that is three stories tall. Next to an out-of-work writer named Mr. Robitussin. I could not care for that character. (laughs) Get him out of this movie. Give me more Fat Louie. Oh, so much more Fat We haven't talked about how much I love Fat Louie in both book and film. Fat Louie is the cat, and he's amazing (laughs) in both book and film. 
yeah, we need more fat sidekick animals in these mm-hmm. YA properties. Apparently, he has a much bigger role in Princess Diaries 2 because he has a bit of a um, will-they-won't-they relationship with a poodle. <gasps> Interesting. Yeah. Call it now. Does he get a tiny little <laughs> crown? Yes Obviously, no? he gets a tiny crown. He's wearing <laughs> one at the end of the movie. Did you not see it? <laughs> I did. On the plane. Yes. Oh, my God. That cat looks so mad in that last scene. He does not like that crown. It's no. heavy. You could see his little head. It's like... <laughs> had to prop him up on a pillow <laughs> he looks really thing. uncomfortable and it's supposed to look like he's because she's like the person who's adapted the best is louie and then it cuts to this cat on a pillow and then it cuts to his looks face and he pissed. looks so unhappy <laughs> <laughs> oh i love a mad cat who was the cat wrangler on this film give that cat a treat <laughs> I mean, the ease with which they put, presumably, a different fat Louie into that kitty carrier, I was like, (laughs) no cat has ever gone into a carrier that easily. That is a trained cat. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Okay. My contributions to YA Bingo will be house porn. Yes. And all the houses, by the way. All the like, houses. Like, I loved always. the firehouse. We haven't talked about that on the podcast, but we've texted about it. I loved the firehouse. How could you not? It's wild. It was gorgeous. I've always wanted to live in a loft. So the idea of basically just having a three-story open <laughs> house with a fire pole? Yes. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> loved it. The other one I kind of need your help with. So it's not dissimilar to your rags to riches, but I'm thinking about these stories where characters find out that they are like the chosen one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Should we just call it the Let's chosen one? Let's call it the one? chosen one. Yeah. yeah. We certainly have enough of them. Although we're never doing another Harry Potter book. I don't think we've talked about it on that podcast, Joe, by the way. We've made that clear on the Twitters, but we've decided we're never doing another Harry Potter book, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah you're right. We've not talked about it audibly. So so let's just drop it into the middle of this Princess Diaries episode. Right. Sorry. <laughs> well, I do keep bringing up Harry Potter and I feel weird every time I say it because then yeah. I'm like, right, we're not talking about it. So folks, we're not talking about Harry Potter aside from the casual references to what Harry Potter has wrought in YA. Yeah, we're tired of giving J.K. Rowling our time and attention, and there's plenty of other places where you can get that content if that's important to you. For us, we've just decided we're going to pay attention to other books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we have no shortage. Trust me, when you see the list and then new things just come out all the freaking time. Yes. All the time. Yes. Which is actually where we're going to go next, Brenna. So why don't you give us the handles, and then I will say what we're going to cover next. (laughs) It was so smooth. It was like I wrote it. Right? It's like we've been doing this for nearly two years. Oh my god. If you want to send some Julie Andrews appreciation to Joe, where can they find you, Joe, on the Twitters? Sorry, I'm accepting only Fat Louie fan fiction. Oh my god, I would read, would read, would read. (laughs) You can find me at a B, still my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, that's Gray with an A, and if you want to find both of us, you can use the hashtag HKHSpod. For longer stuff, like Fat Louie fan fiction that runs to some length, it's HKHSpod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. So next week, we are back into Minnesotaville, and the time has come. We're a little bit late, actually. By the time the episode drops, we'll be into November, but we are going to wrap up our forecast episodes with coverage of books that people should have on their radar, or films, I guess, or TV shows, Mm -hmm. things that people should be keeping an eye out for in November and December of 2020. Ooh, we'll get some holiday content in there, I bet. 
I'm willing to bet so too, because mm-hmm. we do, yeah, we have to address the fact that there's a new Netflix series coming out that we will be covering yes. on Dash and Lily, which I just said, so I guess I don't have to do it next week. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then our regular sode coming up in two weeks. Brenna, I'm taking you outside of your comfort zone. <gasps> I've just been informed about this literally moments before air, ladies and gentlemen. This is true. We were always going to do this, but I'm in danger of having spontaneous spoiled for me by people because everyone and their dog is reading and or watching it. So <laughs> It was so great. Joe's like, we've got to get on top of spontaneous because people are talking about it and I really don't want to have it spoiled for myself. And then and he's like talking about it like I know what he's talking about. And I'm like Googling it while he's talking to me like, what's a spontaneous? It's this funny thing where when we started the podcast, Brenna would be like, I know everything that's happening in YA-ville. I'm on top of it. I follow all these authors. I read Book Riot. And nowadays I'm like, hey, Brenna, what's that thing? And she's like, is that a cloud? I don't know what that is. Yes. But please, school me on Can Lit again, Brenna. School me on Can Lit. God, that was fun last week. All right. So, I don't know. Read Spontaneous, I guess. I just found out about it. Looks good. Um, (laughs) It's about exploding teenagers. I'm very excited, obviously. (laughs) And until next time, I will see you on the page, this page I just found out about. (laughs) Yes, and I will see you on the screen, which will be covered in gore and viscera. (laughs) Oh, no. Pray for me. Yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.